having me here today. Uh, I don't want to say much more about myself. I think it's uh, worthwhile to just dive into God's Word together. So if you have Bibles, I think we don't have a projector, a projector screen working, so you'll have to use your Bibles. Um, I don't know uh, about your church, but our church, uh, we love electronic devices. And so, you know, it, just go ahead and open that up too. But we're going to read from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. This is Jesus who is speaking, and he's about to tell a parable. And it goes like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treating others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. How could this Pharisee be so condescending, right? Doesn't he know that God desires mercy and not sacrifice? He should, he should be taking the log out of his own eye before he tries to take the speck out of others. Am I right? There is something so condescending about his prayer. He's basically praising himself. I can't see myself. I don't know about you. I can't see myself praying the prayer he prayed. Can you? Thank God. Thank God we're not like this Pharisee. Right? And just like that, we have become the Pharisee. I once had a Christian friend a long time ago who constantly complained about my lack of righteousness. <laughs> he was probably right, but I didn't like it. He was critical of all the places I went. When I was younger, I went to not the best places, and he disapproved of the things I did. When I was younger, I, I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done. And when I wasn't perfectly in line with the norms of Scripture, he objected. It was annoying. He clearly had a problem with legalism. And I recognize that legalism is this. Legalism believes that we can earn or keep God's favor by doing what we do. And it was apparent to him that I wasn't earning my keep. And that's when I came across his book. I didn't even know what the book was about. I just Googled Pharisee, and uh, on Amazon, I found a book titled 
accidental Pharisee, avoiding pride, exclusivity, and the other dangers of an overzealous faith. I bought that book. I bought it. I didn't care who the author was. I didn't care what the book was about. Uh, Only the title mattered to me. I didn't even read the reviews. I just bought it, received it, and I drove that book to my friend's house, the legalist, And I quietly, incognito, placed that book on his car, on the top of his car, and I walked away. It was my passive-aggressive way of saying to him that he was a Pharisee. (laughs) But as I walked away, I realized something. Uh, Am I doing something right? (laughs) Should, Should I be doing this? And I realized... You know what? At the very least, I should be reading that book that I gave him. Right? You know, like, uh, what if it was poorly written and it, I would just get in more trouble? What if it sent the wrong message? So I went back to his car, incognito, and I picked that book up and, and I took it home. And I read, I read that book. Here's a snippet from the first chapter. No one starts out with a desire to become a Pharisee. They're the bad guys. We all know that. In the same way, no one ever looks in the mirror and sees a Pharisee. I've never heard of anyone describe himself as a Pharisee, and I bet you haven't either. The word always describes someone else. But the truth is that accidental Pharisees are made up of people just like you and I, you and me, people who love God, love the scriptures, and they're trying their best to live by them. The thing to note about accidental Pharisees is just that. They're accidental. They're like dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. Oh, you guys know what Denny's are. (laughs) Uh, So the author of the book is uh, Larry Osborne. Uh, He's a fantastic writer, actually. Uh, That's what I discovered. And he goes on to explain that it starts out very innocently. He writes, he goes on to write, you step out in faith, and you guys might recognize this in your own life. You make some big changes. You clean up areas of sin and compromise. You add new spiritual disciplines as you excitedly race off toward the front of the following Jesus line. But this eventually leads to a crossroads. So he explains, it's at this point that your personal pursuit of holiness can morph into something dangerous, a deepening sense of frustration. Maybe with those that are around you who don't share your passionate pursuit of holiness. For me, that happened when I became frustrated with my friend. I was frustrated by his lack of grace, and I was disappointed by his lack of love. As much as he was disappointed in me and my lack of conformity to the scriptures, he was, I was disappointed in him. But instead, instead of extending grace and love, which I expected of him, I didn't do that in the midst of my frustration. I accidentally chose to become a Pharisee. My thought was this. Here's my logic. His pursuit of holiness was inferior to my pursuit of holiness. Therefore, he needed to be rebuked, not me. But what I should have done was this, looking back and after reading that book. We both, we both needed Jesus. We both need Jesus to be holy. And so I should have said to him, let's walk in grace and love together. 
You see, the problem with the, the, the word Phariseeism isn't that word in it, Pharisee. It's a different P word. It's the word pride. How did the Pharisees become associated with this? Pride and legalism. What happened to make them the bad guys of the New Testament? Well, we're going to try to answer that, that question amongst many today. But to, to answer these questions, we have to understand who the Pharisees were. You see, you would think, based on what I've said about Pharisees right now, that Jesus would have a low opinion of the Pharisees. And he did in, in uh, uh, other chapters. But actually, just, Jesus has this to say about them in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you see, what's uh, very surprising here is that Jesus, he's saying that the Pharisees represent a high bar. And it wasn't only Jesus. Most Jews admired the spirituality of the Pharisees. Pharisees were the pinnacle of faithfulness. We actually had a Pharisee at our church. Literally, uh, he, was in, he was a Jew who was trained in, in, in Pharisaic they don't call it that anymore, but he was talking about how they're trained to be holy. And they only pick the top students to be trained in that rabbinic school. Well, back then it was the same thing. That's why they looked up to, to these particular leaders, the, the Pharisees, uh, they were looked to, up to as teachers of the law, community leaders. You know why? It was because they were theologically astute. They were obedient to God's law. They were zealous for God. And they were a standard of righteousness. So when Jesus challenged the people to have a righteousness that surpassed the Pharisees, he wasn't disparaging them. He was using them as a positive example. So who, who could surpass the pinnacle of faithfulness? Who could be more holy than a Pharisee? Clearly, there is something that the Pharisees got right. Can we all admit that? This is the context in which Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18. This is not a parable about how the Pharisees were wrong about everything. It's a parable about how a Pharisee was right and wrong at the same time. Let me explain. You see, the Pharisee was right. He was right to pray. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. He prayed. Praying is a good thing. Praying is something that we want to do. And the Pharisee, by praying, isn't in the wrong about that. Something that's uh, standing and praying here, uh, it, it signals this posture of arrogance. How could you stand and pray at the same time? Well, actually, uh, that's how people prayed back then. Even the tax collector stood to pray in verse 13. So there's nothing about the Pharisees' posture that is a sign of this smug superiority. So we're not going to object to his propensity uh, to stand and pray, nor should we object to the manner in which he prays. He was right to pray. That's, that's one thing. But he was also right about another thing. He was also right to be appreciative. He was right to say, God I thank you. You know, God is in control, right? He's the one in control. He's the one who deserves all the credit 
for all the good in our lives. In this way, this Pharisee, his theology was sound. It was, in fact, we could even say it was impeccable in this regard. The Pharisee was right to thank God because God is above us and he's provided everything for us, right? I, I can almost imagine us going, amen, amen to all these things. You know, the Pharisee was also right to fast twice a week and give tithes of all that he got. That's in verse 12. You see, fasting was, not, was only a requirement on one day, the Day of Atonement, and it wasn't required twice a week. Tithing only required a person to give a tenth of uh, their income to the work of God, but some Pharisees like this one even tithe of the food that they ate. This Pharisee went above and beyond. He was right to go above and beyond. In fact, maybe you and I, we celebrate Christians that do the very same thing, who go above and beyond. Missionaries going above and beyond, doing things that would be uncomfortable for them. Other Christians who go into the workplace setting and share the gospel. That's going above and beyond. The Pharisee was also right about the wrong. He was right about the wrongness of extortion. He was right about the wrongness of being unjust. He was right about the wrongness of adultery. I don't think I have to explain that, but he was actually right about those things. The Pharisee was right also about the tax collector. See, tax collectors, not surprisingly, were the people responsible for collecting taxes, right? Okay, but here's the added detail. They did it on the behalf of the Roman government, and typically they were uh, Jews that collected taxes on the behalf of the Roman government. And so the way that they uh, earned their salary uh, is not from the Roman government. The government didn't give them a stipend or anything like that. What happened was they had to collect their own income by charging additional fees, kind of like when you go to Niagara Falls and there's those tourist tax, kind of like that. You get additional fees for these taxes collected. And since these tax collectors could determine whatever those fees were for themselves, they oftentimes charge an exorbitant, exorbitant amount. Now, if someone didn't want to pay this fee, you would probably wonder what would happen then. Well tax collectors had the Roman soldiers at their disposal. And so they could force people to pay. And they could punish those who didn't. Now, this didn't make them very popular, as you can imagine, among their own people, especially when those tax collectors were Jews. And many of them were. Now, likely this tax collector was a Jew, Having been able to enter the temple, only Jews were allowed to do that, at least in the inner court. Uh, or if you consider Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I don't know how to pronounce his name, in Luke 19, they were considered a disgrace. Jewish tax collectors, they worked for the very government that oppressed them. And not only that, these tax collectors extorted their own people for their own benefit. This is probably why the Pharisee's prayer, for his first prayer was like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. The Pharisee shamelessly heaps on the scorn and multiplies it. And he was right to do that. Now, before we criticize the Pharisee's disdain 
for the tax collector, we should remember the Pharisee was right. He was right about the wrongness of extortion, and he was right about the wrongness of the tax collector's shady business practices. In other words, the Pharisee was right about the kind of righteousness that God requires. God wants us to be righteous in pursuing him. He wants us to pray. He wants us to be thankful. He's pleased when we go above and beyond. But God also wants us to be righteous in refraining. It is righteous to refrain from extortion or being unjust or being an adulterer, right? So the Pharisee was right about righteousness. He just was wrong about his own righteousness. You see, even though he was a a Pharisee, even though he was the pinnacle of human faithfulness, the best example of human holiness at the time, and even, even he did not meet the standard that was required of him. So remember I quoted Matthew 5? Well, in, later on in Matthew, uh, Jesus says something different. So in Matthew 5.20, uh, he doesn't say, Unless your righteousness meets that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says instead, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes past it. And this is corroborated later on in verse 48 when Jesus raises that bar even higher. You know what he says? He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Perfect. You see, the Pharisee made the mistake of making the wrong comparison. The Pharisee was comparing his righteousness with the tax collector's righteousness. But you know what? Both of them are a drop in the ocean compared to the righteousness of God. It's, it's kind of like standing on a stool and then you get up there and then you look down at the person without the stool and going, oh, I'm way higher than you. I'm closer to the sun than you are, right? Or taking a single step in front of the person behind you and looking, I'm so far ahead of you. God's righteousness is perfect righteousness. His righteousness isn't just a step above or a few paces ahead. His righteousness eclipses ours eclipses it's the difference between something finite and something infinite his righteousness transcends and outclasses and you're called to be like that actually his 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 is the only righteousness that properly exceeds that of the pharisees and so for this reason this pharisee was wrong about something right. (laughs) But the tax collector, on the other hand, was actually, on the flip side, right about something wrong. Let me explain that. So the tax collector was in the wrong. It was wrong of him to extort from others, to satisfy his own craving for money. It was wrong of him to take advantage of people and seek his own good. It was wrong of him to steal glory from God and gift it to himself. This is a man who knew something was wrong. 
And he was right about it. That's what I mean when I say the tax collector was right about something wrong. Or to put it another way, he was right about being in the wrong. And in addition to this, he was also right about what to do in the midst of being in the wrong. He was right to plead for mercy. When was the last time you pleaded for mercy from a holy God? I wonder. Verse 13 is worth repeating. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There are prayers that we can pray that brings more attention to us rather than God. You know what it's called? It's, it's called a self-glorifying prayer. You see, a legalist loves, loves to remember all the good that they have done. They, they hate, however, reflecting on their past mistakes and ongoing sin. And it comes out in their prayers, right? Or maybe it's more accurate to say that it's absent in their prayers. You don't hear about it. They won't call it pride because that's too overt, overtly arrogant. That's too straightforwardly sinful. Remember accidental Phariseeism? It's not obvious. It doesn't, it doesn't, it starts out with a good feeling. That's how it begins typically. But then it ends up with this bad understanding. And it could be depicted in this internal self-dialogue. So I'm going to depict it for us together. It starts with this self-congratulatory thought. Maybe you might say to yourself, I have overcome this temptation. Yes. Yes. And then it morphs into this outright lie that says, I have defeated this sin. And then this darkens the soul and cultivates a self-glorifying attitude that finds no fault in this particular declaration. Thank God I'm not like those other sinners. Paul Tripp, a pastor, counselor, in the States, he has this to say about self-glory. Self-glory, like that of the Pharisee, decimates the two great commandments. If you're obsessed with your own self-glory, you will not love the glory of God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And you won't love your neighbor as yourself. You won't care about the plight of others. And you won't show mercy to the oppressed. Self-glory never produces patient love, forgiving grace, humble respect, a willingness to listen, or commitment to guard another's reputation in your relationships. Self-glory never makes you kinder, never makes you gentler, never makes you more tender. Self-glory turns truth into a weapon and uses words to harm. You see, the tax collector, on the other hand, has a radically different perspective from the Pharisee. He, instead of moving from self-congratulatory prayer to self-glory, he moves from self-glory to God's glory. He's come face to face with the depths of his own unrighteousness. And he recognizes the other end of the spectrum, which is God's righteousness, his perfect righteousness. And in a situation like that, the only response, the only response is to ask for mercy. When was the last time you asked for mercy, Christian? When was the last time you went down on your knees and looked and contemplated 
the perfect righteousness of God and looked at your own minuscule righteousness and begged for mercy. Now, I, I could end the sermon here with the following application point. Be humble. Be humble and go and live that humble life, you know? And this makes sense in light of Jesus' conclusion in verse 14. You see, and he says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, yeah, be humble. Go and do it. It's, it's, it, it, in truth, it's the only thing that could dismantle self-glorification, right? It's the only thing that could subvert our tendency to be selfish and maybe replace it with selflessness. It's the only thing that could open our eyes to the reality of our lack of righteousness in comparison to God's perfect righteousness. But there is a problem. What if, what if I gave RJ, if I... It, I didn't, I was thinking about doing this. I was going to get a medal and then uh, have it inscripted, most humble person award. Would you wear it? No, he he wouldn't wear it because you're arrogant. (laughs) I think think most of us, right, all of us, I hope, would say no to that. We, We wouldn't accept that. Well, we, we might receive it, but we won't wear it. We would, you know, our, on our day-to-day, can you imagine just hang that thing hanging off of your neck? You wouldn't wear it. But, but let, me, let me just pose this thought experiment. What if you did? What if you did wear it? What if you were like, I deserve this? So you put it over your head, you hang it around your neck, and as soon as you put it on, you know what you've done? You disqualified yourself from that award, right? By putting it on, you prove that you don't Deserve the medal, and it should be immediately taken away. You know, humble people, by definition, aren't in the business of celebrating themselves. This is what makes humility so interesting. It's interesting because as soon as you think you have it, you've lost it. I was uh, in UFT, I studied uh, philosophy, and there was this thing called phenomenology, and one of the phenomenon in life is nothingness. And if you just think about nothing, you've lost nothing because you've made it something, right? It's kind of like that. That's why it's so interesting. Humility, I think, in light of our discussion here, it's not something that can be achieved. So we can't end the sermon here. So I'm sorry, we're going to spend some more time reflecting on this. We can't end it there. We can't be humble. So how? How can, if humility is the solution, how do we get it? How do we be it? Well, let me start off by saying this. Humility is absolutely necessary. We need it. But it is not sufficient. You know, we could fake humility. Maybe you do it. I know I feel like I I might be doing it sometimes. We can even convince ourselves that, oh yeah, we are humble. That's why it's not enough to ask you to be humble. It's not enough to ask you to mimic the tax collector and encourage you to ask God for mercy. The truth is, the pursuit of humility can still result in accidental Phariseeism. That's how foolish we are. 
without realizing it, we can congratulate ourselves for being superficially humble. We might might even convince ourselves that this means that we have achieved a level of humility that that should even count for something. And that's when we put on the proverbial medal and hang it around our necks. Thank God we aren't like those other sinners. Humility, while entirely necessary, it is not sufficient. You know who is sufficient? It's Jesus. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The path to true humility is not you. It is Jesus Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And if he ended it there, it would be like, oh, go be humble. But no, Paul goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, not because you've earned it, not because you've attained that level of humility through some sort of self-determination. No. Have this mind among yourselves. Why? It is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. His humility becomes your humility. Many years ago, my son is here. I didn't ask him if I could share this, so you can give me an ear about it later. But when he was really, really young, really young, he, I don't even think he remembers. Uh, we went to uh, this youth event at Baby Glen, uh, the Alliance Church at Steeles and uh, Baby. And uh, it, was a, it was a kid's kind of party. They, they had this one uh, event where they could t- bring their, um, you know those cars? What are they called? Hot, hot, hot Wheels? Hot Wheels, yeah. You can bring your Hot Wheels and you could race it with other kids. And they built a track and, you know, it goes down and, you know, and... It was kind of cool. Like, uh, so I, I took my son there, and, and I sat there and watched all these kids playing. And he brought two cars. And uh, the first competition, he raced with another kid. And that, his, his car blew the other kid's car out of the water. I was like, whoa. Even the guy who was organizing it was like, oh, man, that's a fast Hot Wheels. That's kind of amazing. And so he... And so there was this competition happening, and he was rising up the ranks of, you know, like, it, it's, it's not like he made the car or anything, but I was still proud of him. I was like, whoa, good job, son. Well done. And then, uh, so at one point, the organizer was like, okay, uh, last round. And, uh, like, basically, my son and this other guy was, you know, at the top. And he says, okay, you should, uh, you can put your car on the track And my son said something that confused everyone. He said, it's not charged yet. And I I was sitting there, I was like, why is it? What do you mean charged? What do you mean by that? And it slowly dawned on me and the organizer first that it was a wind-up Hot Wheel. So it had a propeller, like a, a propulsion system inside of it. It gave him an advantage is what I'm trying to say. And then, and then I was like, oh, oh, no, that's not within the rule books. And 
I was like, how do, how do, we, how do we manage this situation? But before I, I or the organizer could say anything, one of the kids realizing that my son cheated started, started chanting. He was like, cheater, cheater, cheater. And then all the other kids started to chime in, and they're like, cheater, cheater, cheater. And I could look at my son's face, and I could see sorrow grow in his eyes. And I, I, was, I was weeping for him in my heart because I couldn't do anything about it. I was like watching him on the verge of tears. And I, w- I wish I could, you know, I kind of wanted to Arnold Schwarzenegger my way in there and kindergarten cop go, shut up. I wanted to do that for him, but I couldn't. And I sat there thinking, what do I do? And I prayed. I, I, said, I said, God, what do I do in this circumstance? Do I, do I fight for my son or do I let him experience this shame? And I, I let him experience the shame. I did. I don't know if I was being a good parent there, but I wanted him and I to experience humility and then afterwards I told my son this doesn't even compare to the shame guilt that Jesus displayed on the cross I wanted to give him a palpable reminder of the gospel and you don't know that unless you experience pain or hurt or your own unrighteousness you don't know the cross unless you, you contemplate how weak, how sinful you truly are. Christian, you must, you must contemplate this. The only path to true righteousness is not you, it is Jesus Christ. Because he is sufficient, his righteousness can become your righteousness. So for this reason, the true application point is not be humble, but, and many of you guys are probably mature Christians. You've been walking in the faith for a long time, and you need this reminder. I need this reminder. Trust Jesus. Once again, put your faith in Christ. It has to happen on a daily basis. So if you believe that he loves you and can save you from your Phariseeism and sin, pray the tax collector's prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you believe that you are justified in Christ and dead to sin and know that his righteousness is yours and it covers you, then pray the prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is no other recourse for the believer but to pray the prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. So trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk, walk in grace and love this week. I encourage, I employ you. Walk in grace and love, trust Christ, and give glory to him. Amen? Let me pray for you guys. Father, We will be tempted to ignore what you have called us to do, to trust you. We will try to make it about everything else. We'll try to make it about our families. We'll try to make it about our church responsibilities. We'll try to make it about 
uh, what we're doing or who, who we're associated with or which church we go to or which uh, seminary I've been to. Lord, it's none of those things that causes us to be righteous in your eyes. It's Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that for all of us in attendance here, that you would open our heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make us holy. Make us righteous. Make us humble. And help us to submit to you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.